Welcome to Jackson Stays Home, a look at how one community, one county, has been affected and reacted to the coronavirus pandemic. My name is Scott Clow. I'm a morning show host in the city of Jackson, Michigan, and grew up in Brooklyn, Michigan, just 20 minutes south of my home and place of work. Even though my job is considered essential, we, like you, are practicing social distancing, and therefore all of the following interview pieces were done via phone. In this episode of Jackson Stays Home, we meet the people who have responded to the pandemic. Emergency medical services, family doctors, nurses, ER doctors, and the person who was under their care and came out on the other side. You've heard the statistics, the talking heads, the pundits, and the politicians. Now, hear about it from the people who are living it. In this episode of Jackson Stays Home, you go to work with the people on the front lines. A production of McKibben Media Group and WKHM News. And the place it comes home. My name is Jake Dickerson. I'm currently assistant prosecuting attorney here in Jackson County. And on the side, I officiate uh, basketball. My name is Jake Dickerson. I'm currently the assistant prosecuting attorney here in Jackson County. And on the side, I officiate basketball. This is what makes Jake's story so nerve-wrackingly... It makes my skin crawl. He is Jackson County's assistant prosecutor and moonlights as a high school sports official. He works at the same courthouse as the 60-year-old woman who would become the first case of COVID-19 in Jackson County. Jake was also an official at the MHSAA's Boys Basketball District Tournament game at Concord High School on March 11th, which was one of the first two confirmed exposure sites in Jackson County. As you can imagine, Jake has relived that night more than once. The atmosphere was, I mean, it was electric. It was, there was a lot of people there. The first game was Concord and Homer, uh, which which is a, a rivalry game as well. Um, but, I mean, we got there at 5.30 to watch that game before the second game started. And, it, I mean, it was it was pretty much standing room only when we got there. So, so the gym was buzzing pretty good. And um, the first game was a pretty, pretty good game good game especially in the first half but then the second game the Hanover game and Hanover brings a pretty good crowd with them. Looking back on on that scene right now those people shoulder to shoulder standing room only is there a bit of anxiety that's connected with a scene like that for you now? Oh absolutely Um, and and, and to be perfectly honest there there was a little bit that night Um, like I said it was March 11th and, and nothing had really hit yet here in, in Jackson as far as the coronavirus. Um, but it was certainly being talked about. And now thinking about it, it's like, wow, that was, there were so many people there, so close. I mean, you, you couldn't avoid touching somebody while you were there. You, you see people you know, um, so they're always coming up to you and wanting to shake your hand, how you doing, things like that. Um, not to mention when you think about a basketball game in general i mean everybody shakes hands before the game starts um things happen as the game's going on where they're shaking hands at the end of the game people are shaking hands it's just yeah there's a lot of contact there 
I immediately went back in my head thinking about, okay, what happened? What what did we do? What kind of contact did I did? So I know I didn't have any handshakes with the three officials that did the first game. In our game, the, the only thing I can think about is, it, and it's kind of something that the officials always do right as we're about to tip the game off uh, after they've announced the starting five for each player's we kind of grab the ball and we all kind of fist bump each other and say, let's have a good game. And then and then we go out and start officiating. That's what I remember doing during that game. So do you remember the date when it was revealed that a courthouse employee was the first confirmed case of COVID-19 in Jackson? I do. I, I specifically remember the day because it, it was March 17th. And because it was that day also that my partner from the the Hanover basketball game had texted me and my other partner saying hey that he started feeling not good after the game and he'd been diagnosed with bronchitis and pneumonia and I remember sending him a text back saying oh man they just got our first positive case in Jackson and was here at the courthouse automatically we were all just thinking man did we have contact with this person did you know the person the office that that lady worked in did did she infect anybody else? And did we have contact with those people? And then, but then it was Monday night that I got a text from another official who um, who who wasn't part of that game, but it was just an official that, that knows everybody. And he he kind of texted me and said, "Yo, how how are you feeling?" And I was like, "I'm I'm good. Why?" And then it was basically he had said, "You know." your partner is in ICU right now. And then he said another guy that roughed the first game was in ICU. And another game, a guy that did the first game had missed work for the eight days. And then another official that wasn't officiated in the game, but was in the front row of that game is, is in the ICU right now. And, and then another guy is, is not feeling good either. And I, I remember that night being the night that I had a lot of panic. It, it's crazy that uh, about a month ago, how many people thought that this was just being blown out of proportion? And I mean, I gotta mean, I gotta admit that I felt that it was being a little overblown myself. And then, then when 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 all of a sudden you see, bam, first first case, somebody at your work, and then boom, you have people that you're close to and you, you officiated a basketball game with that are actually struggling for their life in ICU, and you realize, oh my God, this. This is very real, and it's very something that you need to take serious. It's scary. Imagine knowing that you had spent significant time at not one but two exposure sites. I should also mention that Jake's wife, Amy, also works at the Jackson County Courthouse. Jake and Amy were the lucky ones. Our Jackson healthcare journey starts with someone who was also in attendance at that game. My name's Chris Huntmacher. I work with the Jackson County Sheriff's Department as a corrections officer. I was diagnosed with COVID-19 on March 25th. I went to the basketball game out to Concord on the 11th. My body just didn't feel right starting Friday the 13th. Um, my wife brought me food out to my work and throughout the night, because I work nights, I work 6P to 6A, um, throughout the night, I just didn't feel right. So I started checking my own um, blood pressure, my own temperature, my RBS and things like that, which is RBS is your blood. I started checking that kind of stuff. 
So we worked that Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I was off Monday, Tuesday. I went to work the following Wednesday, Thursday. And Thursday I felt a little better, but then I had to call in sick Monday, Tuesday, and then I went into the hospital on Wednesday the 25th. So let me stop right here for a moment. You may be thinking to yourself, why did he keep going to work if he wasn't feeling well? Why, with everything going on in the news, didn't he consult a doctor? Well, he did. Chris and his wife, Michelle, tried to see their family doctor, but they weren't able to actually be seen because at that time they were considered a non-emergency patient. Enter telemedicine, phone consultations. This was a little tough to wrap my head around, so I called my hometown physician to see how his treatment of patients has been affected. Hello, this is Gene Kilhorn. Uh, I've been in practice in the Jackson area since 1981. Uh, having received a master's in public health degree from University of Michigan and a medical degree from Michigan State University. I've been in Brooklyn since October of 1982. We are here, my staff is still here, and we're helping people as we can, as much as we can, but I would say I, I would average two to three patients a day. That are actually, actually in the office, and we're not encouraging, but some of those people have to be seen for a blood pressure check, have to be seen for their sugar evaluations. Um, but as far as routine things, get in here so we can do your physical, no, we're generally, for the most part, postponing the, all that type of thing. We're doing more and more in this current environment by phone, uh, and in fact, keeping in touch with some people on a daily basis. We have one patient currently that we're calling on a daily basis because she lost her husband years ago but has no close friends or relatives that would be checking on her, and she's really concerned about dying at home by herself. You've gotten to see uh, uh, a lot of families start, and you've seen a few families end. Yes, I have a number of them. And I've gotten to see a trend with medications that work for Grandma also works for daughter and also may work for granddaughter. Um, You can see family generations and the different illnesses and diseases and trying to prevent them from occurring uh, and helping them to live a better quality of life longer. It's it's been really rewarding. So with that in mind, knowing your patients as well as you do, something like we're experiencing right now has got to feel different for you than it does a hospital physician that doesn't doesn't know their patients as well. It's totally different. And the other part is you really want to reach out and help them more than what you can. But with the constrictions of testing and uh, personal protected devices and just the whole process has been rather difficult. Maybe I'm naive, Doc, but I, I guess I assume that when you report to work every day, when you report to your practice there in Brooklyn, that there's there's a... A fax that comes in from the CDC or, or FEMA advising you on, on new developments with COVID-19 and, and the coronavirus. Is, is that just wishful thinking? That does not really exist. What exists is our capability of getting on the internet and see from the Center for Disease Control what's happening. 
Um, local hospitals have some information that we get, but not that kind of detail every day that you're talking about. It sometimes is even delayed with re- with reference to the speed we get test results back. And sometimes, interesting enough, the patient gets some by what's called my chart from different hospital electronic medical records quicker than what sometimes we even get them. So no, there it, it isn't that good of a system. We wish it was, but no, it's not. Now back to Chris. He and his wife have done everything right to this point. Chris didn't feel well. He stayed home. He called his doctor and quarantined himself. Had Michelle not been there, this is where first responders would have come into play. First responders, EMS, and paramedics are a different breed. They are the kind of people who, well, let me have Chris tell you. When you sign up for that career, you're giving your life to help someone else out. So whenever I'm ready. All right. Hi, my name is Jason Morin. I am a firefighter and EMT for Somerset Township Fire Department. Tell me what a typical precautionary measure was like prior to the coronavirus and COVID-19. Really, our basic body substance isolation, gloves. You know, you go on a medical call, uh, anything of that nature, and generally when we walked in the door, we had just our non-latex gloves on. And what's it like now? Oh, now it's a whole other story. Now we've got our N95 masks that we wear. Central Dispatch has a new list of questions to ask people who call 911 when it comes to an illness. Um, we get notified to our dispatch center whether it is a, a potential COVID call or persist a regular medical emergency. Um, regardless to the information we receive, now when we get on scene, the paramedic gloves up, masks up, goggles, or face shield, they make initial patient contact. We don't, we don't even bring our, our gear into the residents' houses anymore. The paramedic, they'll go in and do an initial patient contact and assess them, but even then, it's still not directly contacting the patient. If the paramedic decides that this is a critical emergency, then they will radio to me or the EMT, whoever's in the ambulance, to go ahead and bring some gear in, the equipment that's necessarily only necessary, um, and then we mask up or goggle up with our N95s and rubber gloves, take extreme precautions not to touch anything in the residence, and we're under, we're under orders from Med Control and through MDHHS that we're only transporting the most critical patients. If somebody's having a really bad day, but it's not a really, really bad day, and they've got other means to transport themselves or have a relative to transport them to the hospital, we're to recommend that versus bringing that patient into our ambulance and potentially contaminating and taking out of service our ambulance. So it's changed incredibly. Okay, um, so my name's uh, Dr. Michael Phil. Um, DO. Um, I've been working at the emergency department at Henry Ford Allegiance for about 10 years now. Um, actually, it'll be 11 this uh, July. Um, so my title is there. I'm an emergency physician. I'm also a vice chair of the emergency department, and I'm the medical director for EMS um, for Jackson County. The medical director for EMS for Jackson County. What does that entail, Doc? So I'm essentially the liaison between the state of Michigan and the local uh, EMS agency. So locally, we develop uh, protocols and procedures for the pre-hospital treatment of patients, um, also help manage the um, 
uh, essentially the 911 EMS system um, from kind of a global standpoint. Tell me how, since the outbreak of COVID-19 and the coronavirus, the oversight and advisement of EMS has changed. Sure. So the state has come out with a, a lot of um, what they call emergency protocols, um, most of which we've adapted or, excuse me, adopted in Jackson County. We're obviously um, in close contact with our EMS partners, not only our ambulance partners, but also our medical first responders and fire department uh, members. And one of the biggest things is trying to help them and navigate the ways for them to get personal protective equipment. Now, as far as the actual transport of patients, um, we're looking at uh, some new things. The, uh, excuse me, the state of Michigan has come out with some um, telemedicine protocols, um, which we've adopted. Um, we do have some ability, which we were pushing forth anyway, um, to do some telemedicine consults for people in their homes, um, as well as our EMS partners, to see is treatment to the emergency department really appropriate? And of course, we want to take care of people the best way we can, but we also want to protect our patients and um, not expose the community to, um, to potentially um, COVID. How have things dramatically changed from business as usual within the emergency room at Henry Ford Allegiance Health to the new policies and procedures that are in place now? What I can say is one of the dramatic changes are visitor restrictions, um, which many people in the community may have realized, um, which is uh, can be inconvenient um, for uh, patients and their family members, but it's meant to, uh, to protect um, not only our patients, but their family and, um, and uh, our staff as well. The other dramatic changes is if somebody comes to our hospital and there is a patient, um, they may see the staff uh, walking around in um, surgical masks and having face shields on, um, when the staff's interacting with them, they may be wearing other personal protective equipment, uh, such as I mentioned, gowns, gloves, et cetera. And that, again, is, uh, is really for the patient's protection, not only the staff protection, but patient and family protection, because we certainly don't want to go in and evaluate a patient who um, may have this uh, COVID-19 and then pass it to another um, patient ourselves. So a lot of these uh, measures that we're um, undergoing uh, or undertaking are um, meant to protect uh, the patients in our community. Now back to Chris. He is now being transported to the ER with his wife, Michelle, and we'll find out in a short time that he has been diagnosed with COVID-19 and that he will be admitted to Henry Ford Allegiance Health. Tell me about your experience upon being admitted to the hospital. So um, down in the ER, I was there for like 10 hours because then I went up into the fourth floor about 7.30, 8 o'clock Wednesday night, and then I was up in that, my same room um, until I was released on the 7th. Were you on a ventilator, Chris? Yes, for eight days. I don't remember much about my 14 days in the hospital, Scott. My wife dropped me off. She wasn't able to go through the metal detector. Um, they walked me back to my ER room, and then I called her like, 20 minutes to a half hour later and said, looks like I'm going to get admitted. So then she came back home. And that was the last time I seen my wife until the day she picked me up out of the hospital. My name is Michelle Huntmacher. I am 52. 
and I am Chris's wife. Let's let's talk about that morning of the the twenty fifth. What was going through your mind is is he was trying to make a phone call and you had to to finish it for him. Well, and that's kind of you know like the days you know even leading up to that when you know Chris was downstairs on Tuesday. You know we'd finally said because we have a full you know walkout so he could be down there and and have everything he needed. And you know he stayed down there, but you could hear him all day like coughing and you know different things so I knew he was okay without going downstairs but we went to bed Tuesday night and when I got up Wednesday morning I'm like okay I know Chris was having trouble breathing how do I know he's alive like because I can't put my eyes on him I couldn't hear him when I got up so and I was still working from home at that point in time and so I was in my office and then I heard him cough so I'm like, okay, so he's alive. I mean, because you just, at this point, you don't know how bad things got overnight um, in that. And, and again, you know, no eyes on him. So I heard him cough. I'm like, okay, so he's alive. So that's good. You know, he hopefully he got some rest. And then he comes upstairs and he can't even have enough breath to talk to you. And he's trying to call the doctor's office. And of course, you know, the doctor's office when we when Chris was calling they hadn't had an experience either with COVID-19 for one of their patients yet so they're like well we're going to give you the 313 number and Chris luckily had it on the speakerphone and I was like wait a minute we've called the number twice already so through these steps of Chris and him getting worse we had called it the hospital hotline and they told us both times you don't meet the qualifications, just continue to quarantine at home. So I was like, okay, he can't breathe. He can't even talk and breathe. Like we can't just keep sitting at home. So the nurse was like, Michelle, I want you to get him to the emergency room. And I said, okay, that's all you got to tell me. Like you can't, you can't keep telling us to stay at home till what point is too late. Tell me about the experience then checking him into the ER. How did that go? Well, you know, we, we pull up outside and, you know, we park and they're like, just no, you can't come in. So you, you know, the door opens and you walk in and, and there's people standing there looking at you like, what can we do for you? And we're like, well, you know, the doctor's office called, they're expecting us, which, you know, Chris's primary care physician had called the emergency room, talked to the charge nurse. So they were expecting him to come in. So the nurse came right out and she, or he, it was a male nurse and he's like, yep, we're expecting him. So they, you know, took Chris right away. But at that point I couldn't hug him. I couldn't give him a kiss because he could potentially have this virus. And it was bad enough that I had already, you know, been home with him every day, sleeping next to him with him breathing on me at night. So it was just like, okay, you know, I'll, I'll talk to you, I'll see you, you know, we'll figure this out type thing. And, and the way he went, and I was like, okay, I'm going back to my car. And I sat in the parking lot for 90 minutes. Like, I, I didn't really know what else I was supposed to do, because if he was sick, I was sure they weren't going to send him right back out the emergency room door. Then I did text Chris, and I said, you know, what's going on in there? Because, again, you can't see. And he was just like, I'm in a room, you know, I'm really cold, I've got a fever now, which, you know, again, he hadn't had at home. 
So, you know, from there it was just kind of like, where is this going to go? So fill in the blanks. Chris says he doesn't remember uh, the bulk of his 14 days in the, in the hospital. When was the first time after he had been admitted that you heard from anybody? You mean heard from anyone, including Chris? or yes. from the? So, I mean, I stayed in contact with Chris once I came back home because, unfortunately, for both of my kids, they're adult kids, but they had been home, you know, working from home type thing. So now they're quarantined as well and, you know, could be sick. And so we're back here and, you know, we were talking to Chris. We knew they were going to admit him Wednesday and things didn't seem super bad Wednesday. You know, like they had him on oxygen. He seemed like he was breathing pretty good. You know, the oxygen was really helpful. He still couldn't really talk on the phone and breathe at the same time. So if you can envision, you know, you're getting oxygen, but the oxygen is still not enough to allow you to talk and breathe at the same time. You know, so I could still still tell in Chris's voice he was very scared still because, again, he knew what was happening to himself just based on the medical side. Um, And then Thursday, oddly enough, I'm at home, you know, working still because, you know, what else am I supposed to do at this point? So I'm still kind of working on my computer here at home. And um, I had talked to Chris in the morning, but really I got a call from this woman who said, I'm calling from the Jackson County Health Department, and um, I wanted to advise you that you've been in contact with a positive COVID-19 case. And I'm like, what? And she, you know, said it again. And I'm like, are you calling to tell me that my husband is positive? Like, I hadn't heard it from anywhere else. And the county health department person is calling me and telling me that I've been exposed through Chris, but we didn't even know at that point that his test was positive. That's the same way Chris found out was when the health department called him. So he's in the hospital. No nurse, no doctor told him. It was a health department person calling. So the results must go to them first. Um, so to me, it, it, it really took me back because I'm like, okay, now how does this change the game? And how did it change mm-hmm. it for you, Melissa? Uh, well, then we talked about like, okay, you know, so we're in quarantine. We had to think about all the people Chris had contacted you know, where had he been, and you're trying to build that list because obviously you want everyone that could have been exposed to him to be aware. You know, it's not like you want to keep it a secret. Um, So, you know, it was building that list. Who had my kids, you know, talked to or been around? You know, you had to, like, all of those people. You know, we get that situated. She talks to my daughters because they're here, and and then has to tell them, you know, the same thing. You've been exposed. Now you're on 14-day quarantine. you got to take your temperature twice a day, monitor any of your symptoms. So then I was talking. I started talking to the nurses. My name is Shelly Caroga. I am the clinical nurse manager for um, 6T and 7T. And what those units are is 6T is the medical universal bed unit and 7T is the neural universal bed unit. 
um, that's here at Henry Ford Allegiance Health. I've been with the organization for 13 years. I've been a nurse for 22 years. You used a lot of in- industry terms just now when describing what it is <laughs> that you do. Can you dumb it down for me? Sure. So um, I am the manager. I am in charge of the daily operations of um, two units. These units are very um, unique. They're universal bed units. And what that means is we take a variety of patients, anywhere from the sickest of the sick to um, a medium level of care to a low level of care. And the concept of this unit is that the patient isn't being transferred to place to place. Um, And it's very unique. I believe it's the only one in Michigan. And we take patients um, that have medical issues as far as a lot of pneumonia, respiratory issues, and then the seventh floor is more of the neurological population. So we get a lot of um, strokes and brain injuries. Is this the the floor then where they're sending the the majority of the COVID-19 coronavirus patients? Yeah, so both of my units have been converted to strictly COVID-19 patients. So we start in the morning um, getting report and doing a shift change. Um, We do that at the bedside with the patient um, and the family if they're um, on the unit. And then um, we kind of do our assessment with our patients, start passing our meds. And then around 9 o'clock we start um, multidisciplinary rounds. And this is a team approach where um, the physician, the um, respiratory therapist, the case manager, the nurses, um, anyone who partakes in the patient care comes together and discusses the um, plan of care so that we're all on the same page. So it's a very different feel on the unit. Um, We quickly um, went into action. Um, We developed an incident command center that worked 24-7 to get everything in place. Um, We had to change some of the supplies that we had, and um, our supply chain worked with us on that. Um, the stocking of the supplies had to come out of the rooms. We had to um, make sure things were accessible in the hallways. We um, also had to limit visitors, so there's no visitors. That gives a very different feel, and that was very hard for us. We we like to have a family approach, and we liked loved ones around. And it's just a different feel on the unit without that. It's a little bit lonely at times, but um, we're a great team. We've come together and um, we power through. Um, We have a lot of laughter through all the stressful times to kind of help. You are the empathetic caregivers that ensure someone's health in the daily routine happens. How difficult has it been to watch this disease work its way through our community? It has definitely been scary times. I think I can talk for all nurses on the floor when I talk about this. Um, I am, I love being a nurse. I am proud to be a nurse. And all of us came together and we're like, this is what we do. This is what we do. We take care of our community. We take care of our patients. We take care of their families. I mean, this is what we do. So, um, it's, it's been hard, very difficult to see patients go through this, but I will say our hearts go out to the families um, that have lost anyone to this virus. Our hearts go out to the visitors that are able to see their loved ones. Imagine your son 
your daughter, your mother or father, your spouse facing a literal battle for their life and not being there to hold their hand. Michelle Huntenlocker lived that. It's terrible. I mean, you know, because again, when Chris walked in the door on Wednesday, that could have been the last time I saw him or spoke to him where we had, you know, visual contact. It makes the journey very difficult. And thankfully for me, I had my kids home with me because, you know, all being quarantined, we're all together. Um, I can't imagine being, you know, with my kids, our kids being grown, had they not been home, to be here by myself. We didn't really know how things were going to go. But Friday, when Chris called me um, at 530 in the morning and said, I think they're going to put me on a ventilator, you know, and... I just don't think when you hear the word ventilator, it's always bad, you know. I think that for the most part, we think of a ventilator as end-of-life support type situation. And I I would stress, I think, with this COVID-19, after talking to my own primary care physician, I think she helped me immensely in the perspective of with this COVID-19, the ventilator has to be support. There's not a cure for COVID-19. So the only thing they can do once it's diagnosed and it progresses, and like Chris had some underlying health issues from being a firefighter, he has scarring in his, his lungs from that. So when it attaches to something like that, the only thing the medical profession can do is support the lungs. So the ventilator in that aspect, you know, tried to look at it as a positive because it was working for him and letting his lungs rest and heal. And the potential at that point, you know, really no one had had a bunch of people coming off a ventilator, so still very scary. But at least it gave me a perspective of, you know, they know what they're doing. They know this is the best process for this virus. So we just have to have faith. And that's when I finally said, okay, I have to have more people supporting us than just my immediate family and Chris's. So that's when I reached out from a Facebook post and said, you know, Chris just went to a game. Sorry. You know, he was just someone who wanted to go to a game, and now he's fighting for his life. And really, the community was huge and, you know, like, tremendous support, and it grew, like, every day. Um, You know, just, like, people we didn't know were praying for Chris and saying, you know, I don't even know you, but I'm praying for your husband and your family and you know it's it's that part we will never be able to thank everyone for because you know it's it it is such a terrible virus that you just don't know enough about and to think that strangers can support you in a time that is just 
you know, distance because you're really not together. You can't, you know, if I was in the hospital with Chris, you could see all this stuff going on. You could talk to the nurses every time they came in the room. And to be remote, I mean, you're relying on phone calls to them, you know, them giving you information, what they think you need to know. And um, I think we got to a really good point where they knew if I was calling what my expectations of questions were going to be. Um, I kept a notebook for Chris so he can actually go back now and look at every single day and conversations that I had with the nurses, questions that I had, comments they made about him. I can't say I remember even going in on Wednesday. I thought I went in on a Monday. Um, but then looking at the dates now, everything does line up that it was a Wednesday. Um, then I got put on the ventilator Friday morning. So um, I was in the hospital room from Wednesday at 9.30 in the morning till Friday at 6 o'clock in the morning is when they put me on the vent. And then I got off the following Friday, like at 10 o'clock at night, Around six, at night. 6 at night. So um, I was on the vent for eight days, Friday to Friday. Do you remember coming off the ventilator? Um, I don't remember coming off the ventilator, but then I, you know, called certain individuals, my wife, my brother, and talked to them like like I was a crazy person, you know, like, why did you guys do this to me? Why did you let them do this to me? And things like that. But no. And that's all them telling me this. I, I remember some of the conversations, but I don't remember all of them. And which is good, you know, subconsciously it's blocked it out, you know, because there's things that you don't want to remember. What's the first moment that you remember with clarity then? With clarity, it would have been probably um, Palm Sunday. Saturday, you know, it was either Saturday or Sunday um, after I came off the vent, because I came off the vent that Friday. And then Palm Sunday, of course, I remember calling my wife that day, and they were outside working the, yet the day before. And so then she sent me pictures of stuff they did outside in the yard. But she said it made her happy that I was able to talk to them on Palm Sunday. So, and I, I do remember calling them, you know, because when you're in the hospital, you're, you're confined to your room, so all you have is your phone and the TV. So I, I remember calling them, but she says I talked to them through a whiteboard, which I don't remember using no whiteboard whatsoever. Um, I remember texting people from work. And I asked the med staff if they would give me my phone. And they said, your wife says you can't have it because you're going to talk to people. I said, all I'm going to do is play cards. And I lied because <laughs> I did call people. <laughs> but I, so those type of things I do remember. But that's after the um, Saturday, Sunday, after I came off the bench. You know, but from Friday to Friday, I do not remember any of that. From what you can recall, how was your treatment? How were the people there? My treatment at the hospital was I couldn't. Um, I'm going to get emotional. I apologize. Please do but apologize. the day I left, um, one of the head nurses asked if they could video me leaving. I said, no. She goes, what are your success rate? You know, we don't have very many success stories. I said, well, that's a true statement, but the true success, the true heroes are you nurses and you med staff. You know, you're the ones that keep the people alive. So, you know, to me, they're the heroes. I'm Pete May, the Director of Marketing and Communications at Henry Ford Allegiance Health. 
and I've been with the organization for a little over seven years now. So up until last week, maybe a week and a half ago, you were reporting to the hospital, the hotbed of, of the COVID-19 uh, and the hotbed of the coronavirus, and you were heading back. You got a young kid at home. You got a, you've got a wife. Uh, what was going through your mind as you were, you were in the epicenter of the outbreak and heading home every day? Well, you know, I'll say this. We have a lot of what we're calling our healthcare heroes that are, that are working directly with patients, many of whom have COVID-19. So while I think a lot of us are taking some amount of risk and going into the hospital, you know, those are really our true heroes who are on the front lines taking care of patients. You know, the, the, at the same time, you know, I'm interacting with people who are going onto the unit. So you always have to be mindful of the fact that, you know, I could be getting exposed. And like you said, I have a, a young family that I need to do my part to protect. I also have parents that are a little bit older and want to make sure that I'm not exposing them at all. And so, you know, we made the decision to kind of quarantine my, my parents, so to speak, and that, you know, we're taking them groceries and things like that, but we're not actually hanging out and spending time with them. Uh, but also just being really vigilant about washing my hands, changing my clothes when I get home, so that I'm, I'm doing my part to help prevent the spread. Well, I will say that this has been difficult for a lot of um, healthcare professionals. Um, some of us have relocated short-term to get through this so that we can protect our loved ones. Um, and we, we do quite a few things to help this. The, the personnel that works on the COVID units do change into scrubs when they get here and change out when they leave. We also encourage them to wear the same shoes and coat to work every day and just keep that in their garage. Don't take it into their house. Um, we encourage them to um, take their clothes off before entering their house in the garage um, or wherever it may be and then go directly to the shower. Um, but it has been very difficult. We're very worried about our families at home. If there's a population of professionals that have one another's backs. Boy, it's nurses. How are you caring for one another? So we we had an amazing team before, but now I think we've just come together even more. And um, we just have a bond that I don't think we'll ever have with any other group in the future. It's just amazing how much we've come together. And we talk a lot. We have... Um, 30 seconds of silence before every shift just to regroup, to um, honor someone, to pray if we wish, just whatever it may be, just 30 seconds of silence just to kind of keep that mental health um, flowing. We have lots and lots of support from our organization um, with some education and um, different kind of stress relief type um, webinars and um, we have a hotline that we can call if um, we just need to talk or vent or um, have any issues. Our leadership team has been amazing in supporting all of us. Um, all of the other departments in the hospital, I mean it's just the list is so long but they've all reached out and offered whatever support that they can so we're, we're taking care of each other pretty good. How refreshing is it to see the appreciation and perhaps a new understanding of what it is that you go through from the community at large? 
it's an amazing feeling. I mean, it honestly warms our hearts. It makes us just feel like we're getting just a huge hug from the community. Um, and it makes it a lot easier when we have these difficult times. We are so appreciative. I hear it every day walking down the halls, how everyone is just so appreciative of everything that everyone's doing for us. Um, and we just couldn't be more thankful. Well, Chris and Michelle are home now, and they aren't the only victories. In fact, another new protocol has been instituted at Henry Ford Allegiance Health. We actually started something I think is really wonderful is um, we do kind of like a victory salute to that patient as they leave. We clap and cheer them on, and then we're playing a little chime overhead, um, walking on sunshine as they leave just to celebrate those victories. I know every time I talk to them, I also conveyed to them how much we appreciated the work they were doing because they were going in away from their families and you know you sign up to be a nurse or a doctor and you know you're going to be in harm's way but not every day 12 hours a day multiple days in a row I mean they are working tirelessly there and the support that they're giving not only to the patients but to the families because we are remote was outstanding and we you know can never thank them enough for the work that they did i just want to commend the henry ford elite staff they did an excellent job so now that you're out and you're clear how does it feel listening to the news and, and hearing just blatant statistics and not hearing about people that have stories similar to yours? Well, there's stories out there. It's just um, people getting the, like you reaching out to me. We're all a success. Um, the med staff, the doctors are doing whatever they can to help as many people as they can. You know, And then once it goes from there, it goes into God's hands. You know, but we're all a success. If you could sit yourself down, uh, today is Monday the 13th. If you had an opportunity to sit yourself down back on March 1st, Chris, what would you say to yourself? Well, I've always looked at things totally different. I've lived my life on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, you live every day to the fullest because you never know when it's going to be your last day well i've been through part of that now you know going through the covid being on a ventilator for eight days i've always said i have a date of birth and i already have my date of death has already just been stamped too i just don't know when it is um the only guy that knows that is the gentleman upstairs you just live every day to the fullest and you never take anything for granted and i'm true proof of that now there's so much more ground to cover to fully appreciate the changes Jackson, Michigan has experienced in our world of healthcare. If you'd like to hear the full unedited interview with Chris and Michelle Huntenlocker, it is available now at WKHM.com on the Jackson Stays Home podcast page. Special thanks to Kevin Nichols for the Jackson Stays Home theme, Estel. Oh, and to Katrina in the Waves, whom I did not ask for permission to use walking on sunshine. Sorry. Thank you to Dr. Michael Phil, Dr. Jean Kilhorn, Shelly Kiroga, RN, 
Jason Morin for allowing me to pick your brain and for the introductions. Pete May, as well as Dr. Brad Double and Paul Buckles, who I interviewed for this episode early on and couldn't find a way to fit them in. Their interviews are also available on WKHM.com on the Jackson Stays Home podcast page. And a tremendous thank you to Chris and Michelle Huntenlocker for allowing me to interrupt your homecoming so that your story could be told and giving us a small glimpse into your experience. This is Jackson Stays Home, a production of McKibben Media Group and WKHM News. And the place it comes.